Tower. How are we doing today? Good. Who's thankful that God is our everlasting Savior? Amen. 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 Well, if you're new around here, we want to welcome you again. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here at Strong Tower. We're glad you could be our guest today. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles or follow along the screen behind me, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 as we continue our Advent series in the season of Christmas. Isaiah chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. 1 through 10. Hear the reading of God's Word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, With Us in Failure. With Us in Failure. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that, Lord, you are indeed with us. Your presence never leaves. As the psalmist says, Where can I go to hide from your presence? If I go too high, too low, there you are. That's, you cannot escape. And so, God, we pray, Lord, that as we reflect on your presence in the midst of our failures, we would sense it, we would know it, wherever we find ourselves today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. In October of 1871, with the dry weather and an abundance of wind in the windy city of Chicago, the city was extremely vulnerable to fire. And if you know your history, you know that that same time period is when the great Chicago fire erupted. And at first, they weren't really sure how it even happened. In fact, it took uh, historians a long time to kind of research and trace, and, and they're still not quite sure. But legend has it that it might have been a family farm on the outskirts of town where a cow might have just simply knocked over a lantern and set the whole city ablaze. In fact, it burned so quickly it, and so long, it was from Sunday to Tuesday. 
And it spread from the outskirts into the city center, and it tore apart the city. Thousands upon thousands of buildings were destroyed. $200 million worth of damage in 1871. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money now. But, I mean, buildings were eradicated. 300 people lost their lives. They said that reports said you could look for as far as you could see, and it was just devastation. It looked like a bomb had taken over the city. It was devastation as far and as wide as you could imagine. And I give you that picture to think about as we read this text from Isaiah 11, the context of this text is that kind of devastation. It's that kind of, of, of just uh, disaster in, in, in Israel. And it goes back to what God had, had told His people years before this. He had said to them, you know, if you don't come back to me, if you don't return to me, it's going to be bad. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be destruction. It's not going to go well for you. So I'm inviting you back to me. I'm inviting you to come, repent, be restored. And, and year after year, as God was sending His prophets to give them this message, they chose not to come. They chose to continue to pursue their idols and the other gods and, and to turn their back on the one true God. And so because of that, God said, well, I can't let this continue. I have to deal with, with the sin in my people. And so he used the Assyrian army to come as his hand. And, and they brought judgment upon God's people. And he says in Isaiah, it was like God had an axe in his hand and he just came through and chopped down the whole forest of Israel. He said there were so few trees left that a child could count them on his hand. And the trees were all burning. It's, it's this sense that the, the forest is just wiped out and everything's on fire. I mean, it's, it's an intense scene in Isaiah. It's, it's an intense scene of judgment and destruction. And as God's people are, are experiencing this, people are now crying out to God wondering, can anything good happen now? Like, can, can God bring life out of this debt, out of our failure, out of our rebellion? Because we didn't really think this was going to happen. We, we thought God was giving us time and we had plenty to work with. And, and then now, here it is, and we don't know if we can have hope anymore. We don't know if, if despair is going to take over or if we can trust God to, to not abandon us, but to save us. And so these are the questions that are swirling around as they look at the devastation and they wonder, can God bring life? Can He bring life out of death? Have, have you ever asked that question before? Can, can God restore this? Can, can God really bring life out of all the failure in my life? Can God bring newness and wholeness and thriving? Can, can He bring it out of, out of the world that we live in? I mean, it doesn't take long to just look around in our world and we see so much barrenness, so much brokenness. I mean, we see violence in our communities. We see uh, pain in our families. We see corruption in government. We see selfishness and greed. We see all kinds of, of fruit of all the brokenness around us. And we wonder, right, at times you wonder, can, can God really make this restored? Can he really renew all of this? Is he going to keep his promises? I mean, I don't know where you find yourself today, but, but that is the longing of every human heart. That every human heart wants more 
because we know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be, right? And, and this is what Isaiah is bringing in this text. And as we continue our series here, we've been talking about how God is present, right? We've been calling it God with us. He's present in our pain. And so we've been talking about how he's been present in our, our grief. He's been present in our fear. And now today, he's present in our failure. When everything looks like it's, it's done, it's devastated, the forest is chopped down, there's like three trees left, and everything's on fire. God says, I'm still right there when it's like that. But what, what is the hope that he gives us in that kind of failure? How, how does he restore our hope in the barrenness Surprisingly, it begins with this small branch, a little twig, a little shoot of life out of the death. And this is what I want to look at today, Isaiah's vision of this branch. And so if you're taking notes today, uh, the first thing we need to look at is the call of the branch, the call of the branch. Isaiah begins with the promise in verse 1. Look at what he says with me. Turn to verse 1. He says, "There, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, who in the world is Jesse? If you're new to the Bible, that's all right. This is a key thing you got to understand. Jesse is a person that, if you go back further in the Old Testament, his house was where the prophet Samuel was sent. So if you go back and, and you go to the beginning of Israel as a nation, Samuel was the prophet, and Samuel was sent by God to Jesse's house because God wanted to, to have a new king. God wanted to establish his king because the people had chosen Saul, but God said, that's not my king. I'm going to establish a different one, and I want you to go to Jesse's house because it's coming, or he is coming from Jesse's house. And so Samuel shows up at Jesse's house and knocks on the door and says, hey, I'm here to find the next king. That's the kind of knock on your door that you're probably not expecting, right? And so Jesse starts to panic, and he's like, well, what do you mean? And God didn't tell me you were coming. And so he, he goes out and he finds his sons. He gathers up seven of his sons. He lines them up on the wall. And Samuel the prophet walks down the line. And God is whispering to him, nope, it's not that guy. It's not that guy. It's not that guy. Gets all the way through all the brothers. And none of them are the one that God was looking for. And so Samuel turns to Jesse and what does he say? Do you you have any other sons? I mean, God told me clearly this family was where the king was coming from. And Jesse says, well, there's David. David's out with the sheep, and he's the smallest guy. He's kind of the runt of the family. I I don't think he's who you're looking for. And God told Samuel right then, no, that's the one. That's the next king of Israel, little David. And so God chooses David, he anoints David to be king, and David is then given this promise as he grows older, and God gives him this promise of his covenant in 2 Samuel 7. He says says this, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, God was saying, I'm not going to choose the one that you think I'm going to choose. I'm not going to choose the biggest, the brightest, the best. I'm not going to choose what the world would say power looks like, what what prestige looks like. I'm going to choose the small, the meek, the humble, the forgotten. And then I'm going to make it forever. I'm going to establish your kingdom to never end. I mean, imagine that kind of promise to David. And so... Every king of Judah 
from then on would be from the line of David and king after king. Some would follow God and some would turn away from God and, and there'd be kind of this mix of David's line and then it gets down to the end and now here we're at King Ahaz, a son of David, and he's turned his back on the Lord. And God comes to Ahaz and, and he says, you know, because you've turned your back on me, th- this is not going to go well for you. The promise that I made to your father, it's coming in judgment now to you. And eventually Judah would fall in 586 to Babylon, over a hundred years after Isaiah makes this prophecy. And listen, it seemed at that point, everything was gone. Before it was just the northern kingdom, now the southern kingdom has fallen, all of Israel is in exile. And it seemed as if God had forgotten his promises. And Isaiah says at that point, at that point, that's when the branch comes out. That's when this little twig, this little shoot of life comes out of the stump of Jesse and it will sprout, listen, 700 years later in the womb of the Virgin Mary. See, Jesus, this true son of David, the the one who comes from the line of Jesse, he's saying, I'm coming to fulfill the promise. His coming was this dawning of hope in the midst of despair. His coming was, was the long-awaited, everybody had been, had been uh, anticipating this for centuries, wondering, could God ever keep His promise? In a barren world, Jesus births new life. New life. A few years ago, uh, some friends and I, we were trying to pull up a stump in their yard, and uh, we were not very smart. We didn't actually go get a stump grinder and just simply use the stump grinder to put it down, Right? No, no, we're, we're proud and arrogant, and when you're proud, you, you end up working harder than you should have, right? So we thought, we can just get this up. We got a couple shovels. And so we, we grab the shovel, and we start digging around the stump, and the, the further we dig around the stump, you start to see the whole root system. What you saw on the surface was just, you know, a, about 12-inch stump. It, it wasn't that big, and it was dead. It had been there a long time. Surely this is going to come up real easy. And we kept digging and digging, and there's roots that went for, I don't know, probably 20, 30 feet out. And we're digging up these roots and pulling and yanking, and we're out there for six hours trying to get a stump out of the ground. Because, listen, what seemed... What seemed dead on the surface was still alive under the surface. What seemed like it it was dead and gone and there was no hope that it would ever have life underneath the surface, the root system still was full of life and it was holding on. And what, what Isaiah is saying is, listen, some of us, just like Israel, our life looks like that stump. It looks dull and lifeless and hopeless and despairing. And it seems like on the surface, there's no chance anything good could come out of this. There's nothing good that could come out of this, right? We've given in to hopelessness. On the surface, Satan has won the battle. We're, We're going through struggle after struggle, and it seems like we're always losing. It might be despair over your children. It might be depression over a relationship. It might be a history of addiction that's pulling you back into that life. I don't know what it is, but but whatever it is, it's pulling you in to this hopelessness and this despair to say, on the surface, yes, it looks like it's over. But then Jesus says, there's a branch. There's a branch of hope because there's life in that stump. There's life. Jesus comes to bring life out of death. 
He says, I'm the shoot of Jesse, the branch of hope, no matter what it looks like in the natural, no matter what it looks like on the surface, no matter how far you feel like you've fallen. Listen, God has brought new life in Jesus. That's what he's come to do. In fact, the very way that Jesus would save us would be through death and life. It would be through his death on a cross and his resurrection that he would bring about our redemption out of something that looked hopeless. He would conquer sin and death by going through death itself. He would overcome suffering and pain by going through suffering and pain himself so that like a shoot from a stump, he would rise from the grave. He would rise because God loves to bring new life out of stumps. That's what he does, right? And as he looks out on his people and he sees a whole forest full of stumps, that look lifeless on the surface. He said, I've, I've come just for that. I've come just for them. Maybe you've asked before, how could God do anything in my life? Look, look at all the mess I've created. right? Or, or how could God bring any glory or, or any joy out of all my failures? I mean, maybe, maybe the good things I've done in my life, but, but my failures, really? Really, my pain, my, my, my uh, suffering, all, all the things that I've walked through in my life, how could God use anything in that? And God says, that's exactly what I love to use. I love to use that. And I mean, let's be honest, who, who isn't a stump? The, the only people who, who don't know their stumps are because God hasn't given them the gift of, of exposure. Right? You, you, haven't, you haven't really seen yourself for who you really are, but, but let me let you know, every single person, God says, you're, you're just like that stump. But that's the person he wants to work in. That's the person that Jesus says, I, I birth new life out of it. And when he comes, what, what's he going to be like? This is what Isaiah says that's profound. This is the next point, the character of the branch. Isaiah begins to describe him in verse 2. Look at what he says. He says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, right? That this is what he's describing this branch to be like. And what's fascinating is the kings of Israel they were, they were what you would call anointed ones. They, they were little mini messiahs. That's what the word messiah means, is, is an anointed one. And that meant that they were anointed by the Spirit to do the work that God had given them to do. But then when, when Isaiah is talking about Jesus coming as this branch, he's, he's an anointed one with a, with a special anointing. He, he's got an abundance of anointing. And so he says he's, he's anointed by the Spirit in an abundance, right? He, he's got this spirit of counsel and might and knowledge and fear and wisdom and understanding, right? It's describing Jesus as this, this super Messiah. He, he's the one who's come to fulfill what every king was supposed to be. And so Jesus pulls this title upon himself in Isaiah 61. He quotes it in his ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I am taking that rule and that reign upon myself. I'm the one you've anticipated. I am the messianic king, and the Spirit would be upon him in a way that it had never been upon anyone else. In approval and power for his work. But listen, Jesus would use that anointing, that power, 
differently than anyone else had ever used their power. I mean, look at what he says in verse 4 about Jesus. He says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, the word judge doesn't mean like I'm judging you because you, you've done something against me. It's not to look down on somebody. The word judge really means here to, to plead the cause for somebody. It has this word of, of advocacy. It's, it's to come alongside and to plead the cause of somebody else. That, that's what it means here. And so it's saying that Jesus would come stand beside the poor and be their judge. Jesus would come stand next to them and, and not like the other kings who would come beside someone and, and they would judge them based on their own self-interest or their own agenda or what they saw about that person on the outside. It says Jesus is going to come alongside and judge with righteousness and equity. He's going to come to their defense. And in fact, righteousness and faithfulness would be so close to his heart that, that Isaiah says he's going to wear it like, like the clothes on his body. It, it's going to be a part of who he is. That he would love the poor more than his privilege. And listen, Jesus does this in the most surprising of ways. He actually becomes poor. Jesus doesn't do this from a distance and says, I'm going to come alongside and, and kind of give you a hand up. I'm going to enter into your life and become what you are. Our righteous, spirit-anointed, eternal king was born in a manger, not a mansion. Jesus came. Listen, he was born among the animals in the barn. Jesus was born to, to parents who didn't have enough money, who didn't have the social status. They... They, they went to the temple to make their offering and couldn't afford to buy the proper offering, so they had to offer two cheap doves. This was Jesus' family. He was from Nazareth. Could anything good come from Nazareth? That's Jesus' family. That's Jesus' lineage. Jesus wasn't just that when he was a child, but when he gets older, Jesus says about his own ministry, he says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Your Savior was homeless. Homeless. Your Savior would have been sleeping on a bench with his backpack. That's Jesus. Jesus says, my, my character is such that th this is who I am. It's the clothes I wear. It's the life I live that, that I would come be with the people in need. He became poor to love the poor. About 10 years ago, uh, when my wife and I first got married, uh, we were in between cars. My, my old car had died. It had like 300,000 miles on it. It was well past its life. Uh, and, and we didn't have the money to get a second car at the time. And so I was like, I'll just I'll walk and ride my bike for a while. We'll figure it out. And so I would walk back and forth to work downtown all the time. It was no big deal. We live in Florida. It's great weather. And so one day I'm walking to work in the morning and I've got my backpack full of books because I'm a nerd and that's what I do. And <laughs> I'm walking downtown with a backpack on, and there's a guy across the street, and he's walking down the street, and he calls out in my direction. He says, hey, are you going to Talbot House today? What time's the feeding? <laughs> and I look behind me, and I'm thinking he's talking to somebody else. 
And then he calls out to me again, hey, what, what time's the feeding? And I, then I realize he's, he's talking to me. And then I look down and I, I realize I got a backpack on, I'm walking downtown, and something stirred in me that, that bothers me, that, that embarrasses me. So something stirred in me that, that said, why would you think I'm homeless? But, and, and my first reaction was defensive. Because there's something in me that I, I don't want to associate with that. I, I don't want to be assumed to be in a position of lowliness. Right? I mean, I'm not alone in this room. There, there, there's everybody in this room. You, you have that somewhere in your life. Somewhere in your life. There, there's people in your life that you say, I, I don't know if I want to be associated with them right in our own human pride and in our nature no matter what your social or economic status may be we all have a list business folks have a list homeless folks have a list religious folks have a list whatever you know republicans have a list democrats have a list whoever's on your list your i don't want to be associated with those people as if associating with them might somehow ruin your reputation. And here's Jesus, who says, I'm, I'm not just going to associate with them. I'm going to become them. Right? Our Savior gladly lowers Himself, this downward life for the sake of us. He took upon Himself our shame the shame of prostitutes. He took upon himself the guilt of tax collectors. He took upon himself this, this title, the friend of sinners. He associated with the outcast, the marginalized, the forgotten. Why? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now listen, this, this ain't something you saw on TBN. This is not prosperity gospel like you, you, got, uh, you got poor or he got poor so that you could get rich and you can make a lot of money. That, that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's not talking about you getting a bigger house or a better car or something nice. He's talking about a spiritual uh, richness that Jesus purchased for you through both his physical poverty and his spiritual poverty, but he's brought it to you through his suffering. He's brought it through, uh, to you through his lowering of himself, that he's saying, I'm coming down, I'm coming into the pain, into the brokenness. He's talking about the riches of us knowing God, of us having an inheritance, of us being reconciled into his family because of him. Because of him. That he would lower himself so that we could be lifted. That's his character. I mean, who loves like that? Who loves like Jesus? Who uses their power like Jesus? See, he's unlike anybody else. This is what, what Isaiah is saying. That when he comes... He comes as the branch of hope, and He comes as the one who has the character that no one else has. But not only that, He comes as one who's going to, to do something in this world. And this is where it ends. We, we see His kingdom that He's bringing, the coming of the branch. Uh, Isaiah gives us this vision. It's, it's an incredible vision that gets picked up later on in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. But we see it in verses 6 through 9. 
right? In verses 6 through 9, Isaiah starts to use this imagery, this imagery of the animal kingdom. And he's using this, this uh, contrast between the predators and the prey. And what's, what's interesting in his imagery is they're not acting like the predator and the prey. They're, they're not acting what we would assume these animals would do. In fact, he, he says that, that uh, the, the, wolf, uh, the wolf dwells with the lamb, the leopard lies down with the goat, the cow and the bear are raising their kids together. Right? I mean, probably the most striking part of the image is there's a little infant hanging out in the snake den. What, what in the world is going on? This is surprising, shocking, even disturbing a little bit because it's, it's so beyond anything we would ever expect. And he's not just talking about, you know, Disney Animal Kingdom. He, he's, he's giving this imagery. He's giving this imagery to, to talk about this category of oppressor and oppressed that Israel was personally experiencing. He's speaking to the Assyrians who came in and wiped out their land, and now they're living in bondage and exile, and the next generation is going to have the same problem with Babylon. He's saying that category of oppressor and oppressed is going to be wiped out. He's giving this vision where everything is going to be radically transformed. He, he's saying that, that uh, there's this supernatural peace, this, uh, this peace that where once there was enmity, there'll be love. Where there was once injustice, there'll be equity. Where there was once division, there'll be reconciliation. He's giving this vision that's going all the way back to Eden, right? Where God creates the world and he, and he sits back and after he creates it, what does he say? He says, it's very good. It's thriving, it's doing well, it's flourishing. Everything's the way it was designed to be. And then what happens? Adam and Eve fall into sin and and God says there's this curse that comes upon the whole land. And the curse now comes into the land and and it infects everything. It's this curse that's deep and wide. It, It infects our hearts, our minds, the leaders, the government, the churches, the communities, everything in our life, our families, our children. The curse has no end. Every sin and suffering is because of the curse. Isaiah is bringing us back to that vision. C.S. Lewis, he tries to uh, capture this in his famous children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. In uh, one of the books, if you haven't seen the book or read, read the book or seen the movie, uh, there, there's to give you a quick overview, basically these children, they, they wander into a magical wardrobe and brings them into this uh, fantasy land called Narnia. And in Narnia, there's, there's this wicked witch who's basically uh, cursed the whole land. And they described it as, it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. It's always winter, and it's hard to understand in Florida, but it's, it's always cold winter, but it's never Christmas. And so it's this dark and disturbing and depressing and despairing place, and no one has any hope, and yet there's this small glimpse that, that maybe one day this Aslan character, this lion who would come save them, maybe he will show up and do what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so Aslan comes, and sure enough, he dies, and, and, and he eradicates the curse. But, but this is what I want to talk to you about. Well, one of the phrases that he says is so profound. He says, when Aslan dies, this Christ figure who, who gets rid of the curse, he says this. He says, death started working backwards. You catch that? Death started working backwards. In other words, everything that was undone by the curse, everything that was broken, everything that was barren, all the loss, all the fear, all the anxiety, all of that starts moving backwards. 
and God begins to restore all creation. And winter begins to give way to spring. This is what Isaiah is envisioning in chapter 11. He's envisioning a branch that would come and reverse the curse. And it's already begun. Isaiah is fulfilled later on in in Galatians chapter 3. Paul speaks to this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. See, Christ came to reverse the curse once and for all by taking the curse upon himself. This is what Jesus has come to do. Taking the curse upon himself on the cross, the the soldier who nailed the nails through his hands and feet, the crowds would mock him and despise him. The heavenly father would turn his face away and the branch would be nailed to the tree for our curse and sin. And it was in this, in his death, his destruction, his loss of life, that we would gain all of our life. And as C.S. Lewis said, death would begin working backwards. All creation would begin to be renewed. Isaac Watts captured this idea in the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. He said, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as, far as the curse is found. That's the hope of Christmas, that Jesus is coming to renew all things. In his first advent, he secured the work. In his second advent, he finishes the work. Right? He'll establish perfect peace and justice. There'll be no more sin and sorrow. There'll be no more oppression and violence. There'll be no more division and hurt. Isaiah's vision of a new heaven and a new earth is one day going to be our reality. Right? He, he's saying that hope will give way to experience. Faith will give way to sight. Christ will stand victorious as far as the curse is found. And as Isaiah says, the increase of his government, there will be no end. Despite our failures, despite our barrenness, despite all of our brokenness, God will be with us forever. That's the vision. That's what he says. But he says that begins now. He says, I'm I'm inviting you to hope in the branch. And so wherever you find yourself as we close today, maybe you're here today and you're you're struggling with whatever those things may be, whether it's in your family or you're you're fighting against uh, sin in your life or, or there's circumstances that have just overwhelmed you. I don't know what it is today. Jesus invites you to say, I can trust the branch. It may look barren. It may look dead. It may look like it's hopeless, but, but I can trust. There, there's one who's come in the midst of that, and I can hold on to him because in him there's life. In him there's real hope, hope that we can be secure in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your, your presence because it's in your presence that Really, we get to see and experience your character that is so profound. So different than anyone else who's ever been present with us. There's no other person who's ever been present with us who's been so perfect, so loving, so kind, so generous, so servant-hearted, so powerful, so glorious. You are alone, our Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, as we ask for you, 
to come be with us, to be present in whatever sin and suffering we endure. We're asking for someone to show up that's unlike anyone else in our life. Someone who actually has the power and the character to change us. And so God, we pray you keep our eyes open in that. Keep our hearts uh, ready for that. And help us to endure. Help us to endure whatever may keep us from that. That we would trust you in all of our life. With our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.